Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, Karen. How are you? I'm good, Anne. How are you? Good. Do you know this is our 77th podcast? Wow. I was just noticing that it, we've been doing this for years. Since we were like in high school. Like seven years. And I was like, what? Right. I know. It's pretty amazing. And I wonder like if we look back at the evidence that we talked about, when was it like 2015 or something when we started? Um, if if all of that has changed now that it's 2000, almost 2020. Well, it's interesting you should say that because the article that I picked today actually is by an author who we did a podcast on one of her studies in 2013. Oh my gosh, it even went back to 2013. Oh, so that's great. Yes, that's right. Her original article was in 2013 about supplementation. Perfect. So let's talk about that article. Um, do you want okay. to? Yeah, so go ahead. So um Today, we're going to talk about an article that was published in JAMA Pediatrics in June of 2019 named Effective Early Limited Formula on Breastfeeding Duration in the First Year of Life, a Randomized Clinical Trial. And it's by Valerie Flayerman, Michael Cabana, and Charles McCulloch. And um, as I started to mention, this is um, related to some research that Dr. Flairman's been doing for a while. And if anybody wants to go back and listen to the previous um, podcast we did, it was number 46, and that was in June of 2013. In this study, the authors remind us that breastfeeding um, is recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they've set um, goals for six and 12 months as part of the Healthy People 2020 initiative. However, um, that six-month goal is met by only 52% of U.S. infants, and the 12-month goal, only um, 30% of U.S. infants reach that. Um, and and those goals are for about 60% of U.S. infants to be doing any breastfeeding at six months and for 34% at a year. And so this randomized clinical trial looked at the role of early limited formula supplementation on breastfeeding duration. The authors defined early limited formula as giving 10 milliliters of hypoallergenic formula, which was given via syringe after each episode of breastfeeding. The study enrolled 164 exclusively breastfeeding mother-infant pairs who had newborn weight loss at or above the 75th percentile for age at 24 to 72 hours of life and whose mothers were not yet producing copious milk. The study was done in two academic medical centers in 2015 and 16, and the infants were randomized to receive either this early limited formula or to continue exclusive breastfeeding. And um, this uh, 75th percentile bar that they used was a little bit different from their previous study where they had just used 5% weight loss, 24 hours, and it's based on um, the NUT, which is the newborn weight loss tool you can find online. We might talk about that a little bit later. Yes, I was hoping you'd say that. Um, the study's primary outcome that they were looking at was any breastfeeding at six months. Secondary outcomes included the age at breastfeeding cessation and any breastfeeding at 12 months. And all of these outcomes were assessed by a maternal phone survey. The authors ended up enrolling 82 newborns into each group, and these groups were similar with respect to demographics like maternal age, education, and race, but they discovered later that the pairs who had been randomized to receive the early formula 
were um, the mothers were more likely to be married and they had a shorter mean intended duration of breastfeeding, which was only about a 1.3 month difference. The um, mothers who ended up in the formula group had a mean intention of eight and a half months and the other mothers of 9.9 months. So what effect did this have? The authors found that at six months, the infants randomized to the early formula group, um, about 65% of those were still breastfeeding compared to 77% of the control infants. But this difference was not statistically significant. And that's any breastfeeding. That's any breastfeeding at six months. Mm -hmm. and, and really importantly, and it's something we talked about a lot when we did the first podcast on this topic, this um, result is based on what's called intention to treat. And so although the babies were split into these two groups and the early formula group was given instructions on giving formula and they were given it in the hospital, there are babies in the second group whose parents chose to give formula outside of the instructions that they were given. And so there were infants in both groups who were given formula in the first week of life. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but continuing, at 12 months, the percentage of infants who had been given formula early who were still breastfeeding was only 29% compared to 48% of the control infant, infants. Um, and this was statistically significant in the overall study. However, when they did sub-analysis comparing, um, you know, trying to adjust for the difference in marital status and intention, um, it was possibly due to chance, meaning that it was not sig significant. So in the abstract for this, the authors state their conclusions, um, quote, in this cohort with high breastfeeding prevalence, early limited formula was not associated with any improvement in breastfeeding duration. Future research should examine the effect of early limited formula in populations at higher risk of early cessation, end quote. And I added my own conclusions at the end of this, which were what I took away from this study was really that a whole different section, which was listed that didn't make it into the abstract, which we're going to go into, which was infants who received early routine formula supplementation were less likely to be exclusively breastfeeding at one week versus those who did not receive this early supplementation. And receiving formula at one week postpartum was very strongly associated with low breastfeeding rates at six and 12 months. Yeah, that was fascinating. And I like was shocked that they didn't put that into the abstract. Yeah, I, I was really um, interested to see the study. And in general, I found that the results and the discussion to me didn't make a ton of sense with what they actually discovered in their data. And so um, we can talk more about that and more about some things that I think might have um, been interesting to include that didn't make it into the discussion. Right. So the authors point out that numerous studies have found that duration of breastfeeding is shorter for infants who receive formula in the early newborn period. And they point out that there have been three randomized controlled clinical trials that have not demonstrated this deleterious effect on early supplementation. And so they wanted to investigate that more. Um, one of those three studies is the one that we mentioned um, from 2013. Mm -hmm. The other two are 20 and 30 years old, respectively. And so, you know, I think the landscape has changed in hospitals a great deal in that time in the United States. Right. And right. so I, I kind of mm, had some concerns about their premise there. But that aside, um, they changed the methods a little bit in the study, which I thought was an improvement because using 5% weight loss at 24 hours is a, is a pretty low bar. And so they use this newborn um, weight tool that's called the NEWT, which you can find at www.newbornweight.org. Um, and for anybody who's not familiar with that, I think it's definitely worth a trip to that website to check it out. I think it's, it's a great tool. 
Do you use it? Well, I don't. And the reason I don't is because it's similar to the CDC growth curves compared to the World Health Organization growth curves. If you look at the original study on the Newt curve, it was based on, it just defined a population. It didn't define an optimal population. So it just describes what happens um, in oh. a population of babies who lose weight if they're born vaginally versus if they're born via C-section who are breastfeeding. Um, but it's not optimal. That's and, really interesting. Yeah. And and to confess, now that I've said everyone should look at it, I, <laughs> I don't use it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's worth knowing that it's there. And it's interesting because when I'm teaching my students about weight loss in the newborn period, I often refer to the um, normograms that came out of California. And those are out of a you know Northern California hospital system with really good breastfeeding support. And so I always make the point when I'm talking to the students that these are sort of optimal um, curves, but they're not similar to the population that we are practicing in because mm -hmm. my hospital actually doesn't have really fantastic breastfeeding support or rates. Right. It all is about the support. And that's you know, with the World Health, Health Organization growth curves, you know, these are, this is optimal. These are optimal home environments for babies in terms of growth, as opposed to the older data, you know, where it's just like, who knew if mom smoked or if the <laughs> baby was getting cow's milk or, you know, whatever, it just describes the population. So um, it's kind of amazing that that has become such a popular tool when it's such a, when it's to me, poor data. That's interesting because, you know, I totally see your point about wanting to compare to have the goal of that optimal support. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, but I live in the real world where these are the, these are the, you know, these are the things that are happening to my baby. So I hadn't thought of that before. That's fascinating. Yeah. Plus, I mean, you know, there's the whole issue with IV fluids, which I think sometimes I poo-poo and sometimes I, you know, I kind of use it to my advantage when a baby <laughs> has, like I had a baby recently that at 36 hours was literally down like 11%. And, um, and mom, who is, you know, she's rather uneducated. She looked it up on Google and she's like, I figured out that this was due to IV fluids. And they told me I was having a baby and I wasn't. And she was really mad. And um, then no one addressed it. And she knew that she had gotten a ton of fluids. And I'm like, you are right, you know. Um, so yeah. I use it, you know, I mean, so it, you just have to kind of look at every case individually. Well, and, well that's what know. I was going to say. I was going to say, the big thing is, what did that baby look like? Because when I see a baby who, sometimes I see babies who have what I consider to be unbelievable weight loss. You know, the number is saying they lost 12% at 36 hours and the baby looks great. Right. And you're like, okay, I can reweigh them now to double check that we have the right weight today, but I can't time travel to make sure there wasn't somebody's finger on the scale right. at delivery. Right. Like, was that weight even correct? Right. Um, and that's, yeah. that's, that's hard. I know. I think that there, are, I think we've heard from a couple people, I don't know where I've heard from them, but anyway, some places are actually using the 24 hour weight as the birth, as the, as the weight, as the mm -hmm. go-to weight. And really it's all about cadence, right? It's all about rate of weight of continued weight loss or rate of stabilization of weight it doesn't, it shouldn't be from birth weight to X date. It has to be the rate, just like with bilirubin, you know, you look at the rate of increase or the rate of decrease of the bilirubin over time, um, which gives you a much better story than just, you know, two markers in time. I think, you know, for, for I'm like, yes, you, you can do that. That rate is, but you have to be somewhat sophisticated to appreciate that. Not everybody, not everybody does that. Mm. So, um, you know, I have a, a bunch more things that we can talk about on this study. But before yeah. we do, I also wanted to mention that you had um, turned this into a question of the week. I did. Yes, because I couldn't wait for the podcast. <laughs> so like impulsive. Yes. Well, impulsive and efficient. I was like, man, she's already done it. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting. I liked your question, and I really liked the comments. 
and was also blown away that you had time to go ahead and also already respond to some of the comments. I already had it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll keep going. So infants, um, what, one of the things that I think also relates to the weight loss numbers that they used in the study was the fact that um, like every study, there were exclusion criteria and infants who were um, who had already lost 10% or more of their birth weight were excluded from being enrolled in the study, which left sort of a narrow band of infants who could be enrolled. And the reason they did that here was because in both of the institutions where this study was conducted, infants who have lost 10% or more of their birth weight are already commonly receiving supplementation. And so... And, they, you know, were not all. They were not still exclusively breastfeeding, so right. they couldn't be enrolled. Right. Um, and that relates. Actually, I'm going to skip ahead to something that I was planning to say later, which is of the 571 eligible mother-infant pairs that the um, study authors approached, they only enrolled 164 of those, and of the 407 who were not enrolled. 58% of those said they did not want to use formula. And yes. so they declined to enroll in the yes. study. <clears throat> and that, yeah, right. And that, that was unbelievable, really. I, I, I don't know. I, there are so many ten, tangents that we go off on this study, but I would say that this has to be unethical. This is not evidence-based care of a best of a newborn infant to just give formula at a certain percent down without supporting lactation. Like they don't mention that they made sure that these babies were actually transferring. So because a baby lost weight does not mean that mom did not, was not into lactogenesis too. It may have been that these babies were sleeping. Well, um, sure. There was no evaluation of whether or right. not moms were having nipple pain or whether, you know, their perception was that breastfeeding was going well or not. Right. I think it was a big hole. And I think that one strategy the authors could have used to account for this problem would have been to have a third arm of the study where people who declined to join the study in terms of being randomized could still have been followed to see of those that declined what percentage of those were using formula at one week and what were their outcomes that's brilliant that's brilliant i love that idea it would have showed, you know, yes, still some of those babies probably at some point got formula, even though it wasn't the parents' plans at the time they were approached for this study. And I think it's really important because when you go into the deep discussion at the end of this article, which I I'm, I'm don't intend to go through every line of it, and I think that it's worth reading if people are interested, they talk about the attitudinal differences um, that families have around the use of formula and if it's introduced um, early, whether or not they may be more willing to use it later and the um, sort of using it as a crutch versus this, they call it um, virgin to formula use, like babies haven't been exposed to it and so parents are less likely to start it and what the implications of are that. And I think the authors really missed an opportunity to tease that out mm-hmm. by not including those people. If they're going to talk about it at the end, they should have they should have considered doing it that way. And it was a criticism that I had on their original study. And so right. I'm just going to put right. it out there again. If they're not going to do it, I mean, I'd like to dream that I'm going to get off my chair and go and right. <laughs> you know do a study like this, which is probably not going to happen this year. So if anybody else wants to do a study like this, I'd be thrilled to chat with you about your uh, (laughs) plans so you don't have this massive problem with it. Right. But there is this, you know, I agree. I mean, there's a supposition that there's this fear of formula and that, you know, we sort of have to get over it. You know, this is one of the problems is that we're inducing fear. Um, And that may be the case, that may be one of the underlying reasons why babies have too much weight loss and they get into trouble. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. so that's one aspect of it. Um, What would you like to talk about next in terms of the study? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so when the authors called the families to um, assess the outcomes, they um, 
first ask, has your baby breastfed or received any breast milk in the last 24 hours? And um, if the babies had um, received anything besides breast milk, they ask them, you know, when was formula first introduced? If they were not receiving any more breast milk, they asked, you know, what is the um, last, how old was she when she or he um, stopped receiving breast milk um, or breastfed? And there is, they didn't specifically ask um, just when the baby breastfed or when the mom last pumped. Mm -hmm. And I would say from my experience, there's this group of mothers who um, at some point stop breastfeeding, but they've got sort of a stash of milk in the freezer and they continue to give it. And I feel like they're, the way that they, uh, they ask these questions sort of had the potential to miss people who had had significant trouble with breastfeeding and had either become exclusive pumpers or had um, been dual feeding but had some milk that they had been giving um, for a while. And so I just felt like there was a, a little bit of a problem with the way they asked those questions. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's so common in my population that people will like pump until nine months and say, okay, I've got enough for three more months and so now I'm done. You know? Yeah, because yeah, the, goal, the goal is one. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, I, I mean, we'll talk a little bit later about why that, what kind of issues come up with that kind of thing, because I have an article on that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're right. The questioning is definitely faulty. And in addition, you know, is it, whose milk is it? You know, I had that thought too. Yeah. 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 Well, so, and, and there also was the intention question that they asked at the beginning, which was for how long are you planning to breastfeed? And I don't know about you, but when I ask people that question, a lot of people don't give a number. They say, until I go back to work, until the baby gets teeth, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And so I just, I don't know. I have a lot of questions. Well, the other thing about intent is that I feel like, especially in the the United States, people don't say, I'm going to do this until six months, or I'm going to do this till I'm going to try. I'm going to try because they don't, because they, they identify that there's so many factors that may play a role in their failure, you know? And um, that's interesting. I wouldn't say they identify that there are factors. I would say, at least for first time moms, mm-hmm. they are vaguely aware that there are people out there who wanted to breastfeed who didn't, it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they don't know why that is, but they right. know that it doesn't always work. Right. Oh, yeah. And they hear all about how women lose their supply. So that's, you know, I think that leads to the haka and all. Yeah. So we can go on and on about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's go a little bit more into the effect on breastfeeding duration. Okay. Um, the author said treatment assignment um, did not affect the prevalence of exclusive breastfeeding at six months, um, as well as the any breastfeeding that we already talked about. Breastfeeding prevalence at 12 months was lower for those randomly assigned to the early formula. And um, those early formula babies in the early formula group had a shorter time to um, breastfeeding cessation. And then they made the comment that no beneficial or detrimental effect of early formula on breastfeeding at six months was demonstrated for any subgroup. Um, But at 12 months, breastfeeding prevalence was lower for the infants in the early formula group, particularly for the subgroups for high income mothers Um, and those mothers who were in California. And I think that's a good time to mention the fact that the, you know, general population had pretty high breastfeeding rates in this, in this group. Mm -hmm. And also I sort of touched on it briefly, the, um, the babies who were in this group, they had a, a, um, mean gestational age of 39 Point four weeks, mm-hmm. and so this is a really low risk population. Yeah, you, know, you don't even have those early term infants so right. much in here. Right. Um, there is a lot in here in the um, analysis that is really dense with statistics, mm-hmm. and 
I kind of like that stuff, but even I found it a little bit daunting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the results really were not clinically significant, meaning that they had, you know, confidence intervals that were too wide to know if the effect was random or not. Yeah, and, I noticed that, yeah. And then the way that the authors sort of evaluated that or, you know, their their conclusion sentences were like, so this wasn't, you know, associated with, this really formula wasn't associated with any improvement in breastfeeding duration. Whereas I would have read this to say this intervention, which has risks that we know of, um, didn't, you know, didn't have any measurable positive effect. Mm-hmm. But what um, about the odds ratios? I mean, the odds ratios are astounding. I mean, you know, the odds ratio of, um, being su- early supplementation is like 0.7 or 0.79 for breastfeeding at six months and exclusive breastfeeding at six months. And so, you know, that uh, it's interesting that they reported odds ratios if they didn't consider it significant. Cause that's, I know, that's why I was like, yeah. why are there's all these statistics if they aren't significant? I feel like if I was reporting this data, I would have said, we looked at this, it was not significant. We looked at this, it was not significant. I wouldn't have put in, you know, the difference between the formula group and the control was 0.56 versus 0.61. Like it, who cares? Mm -hmm. That's what's written in the margin in my study right here. Who cares? (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) Um, But I think that importantly, the um, percentage of formula that was given to um, babies who were um, in the control group, like there was formula given to those babies. And in the previous study that we talked about, the authors had reported on the volume of formula that babies took in the control group versus the limited formula, you know, the treatment group. Yeah. And it turned mm-hmm. out that the control group babies actually got way higher volumes. Right. Probably because the parents weren't given this guidance that it should be 10 mLs after each feeding. And at that time, we really thought it had a, a big impact on the results mm-hmm. because of this intention to treat model. Yeah. Um, but the authors didn't, didn't comment on that this time. I don't think they had that data of what the volumes were that um, families gave once they left the hospital if they were not doing the limited group. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's that's data that I really would have liked. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, that has always stuck in my head ever since that study in 2013. I've I, One thing I learned from that study, and, you know, that was a really small study. There were like less than what? It was like, tiny. Yeah, it was a really tiny study. And the impact that that made, um, I think, was huge. I mean, look, I the Similac supplementation formula, suddenly like two months later, one of my patients said to me, oh, you know, I'm supplementing with the Simlax supplementation formula. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh. And then, you know, the Flairman study came out like two months prior to that. I mean, it was amazing. And, um, and, and so, but I've always thought in my head, like, okay, maybe there is a benefit to just really, you know, like making sure that um, there's a very, you know, measured amount, a very small amount of formula in those first couple of days while we're waiting for lactogenesis too. Um, to make sure that parents don't go overboard. Um, I agree. That's the study that I want to see. I I don't want to see a study where they're saying, you've hit this percent weight loss, now give this at every feeding. I want to see a study where they just take a group and they educate them and say, if you give formula on day of life X, it should be this volume. On day of life this, it should be this volume. When your milk increases, you should stop versus not giving people that information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I, th- I think that that's really, and, and then the, the piece where they need to offer donor milk as an option, which we also talked about last time. If we had had a third arm of that early study that had had donor milk, what would the results have been? Right. Oh, I think don't, I think, oh my gosh. I think the attitude, especially as we just talked about how women are so um, 
gun shy about believing that they're going to be successful, if they can start out with supplementation with donor milk, it sort of affirms that yes, breast milk is the natural way to feed your baby. And I feel like their confidence levels are so much higher um, that maybe it, that would diminish their um, sense of, um, you know, we just need to, um, tr- you know, I'm just going to try. I'm just going to try to um, breastfeed. And then, you know, I feel like they've, my sense is they feel like they're throwing in the towel when they're mm-hmm. um, being given formula and they just think, oh, okay, we already ruined it. So uh, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, you're on a diet and you're trying to be really careful. And then you just have that birthday cake and you're like, oh, screw it. You know, I'm just going to have a bad day. I'm just going to pick out a lousy food, right? So. Well, the analogy I always use with the residents is, you know, people will say to a family, okay, your baby has lost 10%. Like that's a really common thing that people do. And we want you to supplement with this formula. And then they don't give any instructions at all about when to stop or limit it. And so I liken it to sending people home with their IV fluids. Like you have got to make a plan to stop this treatment Mm -hmm. and get back to a healthy state either, you know, before or shortly after people leave the hospital. And this is the perfect opening to point out that this study is done completely focused on the hospital and there's just this cliff that people go off and where is the outpatient support? Right, exactly. And that, yeah, that was not at all discussed. And you and in order to really look at... Um, you know, to measure the effect of early limited um, formula supplementation um, and its effect at one week, that safety net, boy, that defines what's going to happen, right? Yeah, I think that if we had an evaluation of these dyads at one week and somebody actually did an objective assessment of how breastfeeding is going and, you know, did that across all of these yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a lot of people, 160-ish dyads, but it was over a year. And so if every one of those families had been seen at a week and then been given guidance at that point, I can't imagine what a difference that would make. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So here's my pie-in-the-sky <laughs> wish <laughs> that I would like to see done before I die. Um, and that is that you know the whole goal here is to prevent terrible things happening, right? We want babies to be successful breastfeeding, and I and I applaud them for trying to figure out a strategy to make sure that babies um, are not going to um, starve or have negative outcomes from excessive weight loss. So yes, we're all we all have the same goal. Just just kind of deciding. Well, let's try at seventy five percent newt scale. Let's just supplement them then. It it doesn't you know it doesn't address um, you know Risk. optimal support yeah risks of that right which many people poo poo no 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 that's not what I meant oh I'm sorry to interrupt you no but go ahead it, it, they're not assessing this dyad's risk of breastfeeding problems. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. And what we need is we need a risk score for dyads. And um, so um, I so uh, Dr. Laura Hernandez, who's our mammary biologist, I mentioned her many times. I should have her on the podcast at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we so in you know in the bovine industry. What they do is they use an ultrasound and they measure glandular growth of the of the um, bag or what I think that's what they call it instead of a breast, um, and they can tell you know the quality of growth of that of that glandular tissue to determine you know whether or not this is an optimal cow and how well they're growing and whether they should be culled, which means going to market, which means you know hammer on your plate. <laughs> For those who don't know what cull means, um, but anyway, so. Laura and I, so Laura, you know, is a mammary biologist who studies this stuff in bovine, but she's also um, working on getting her IBCLC and she's really interested in human lactation. We've talked about, we put together a protocol that would involve um, measuring glandular changes in women during pregnancy and and studying the glandular changes with other markers, whether it's urine markers, blood markers, you know, prolactin levels, you know, whatever it is. using some evidence that we have that may be markers that could indicate insufficient glandular tissue. And um, 
and then scoring that woman and finding that if trying to figure out um, red flags or like a like a predictive tool that can be used to indicate to um, the baby's physician um, that this mother is at risk for not making enough milk. So there's that factor. And then having a scoring, a scoring tool for the infant to um, determine if that infant is going to score high or low in terms of the infant's ability to nurse well. And we have plenty of data on that. Like, you know, we know that, for example, that the late preterms are not going to do well in general. Um, and so um, if we had a tool that would be so much more evidence-based and so much more respectful of families and help them understand, right? otherwise they're just kind of going into this postpartum phase totally blind. And if they're in a baby-friendly hospital, you know, God bless baby-friendly, but, you know, some women just have risk factors that, and, but they're still on the assembly line of you nurse, you know, constantly, and then you um, don't supplement, and you know, you just kind of follow along and hope for the best. Um, and yeah. there's, you know, uh, it's interesting that you're, you know, the idea that you have about the ultrasound is fascinating to me. But mm-hmm. there's so many people who I see that that is not their problem. They have sufficient glandular tissue, they made milk in a timely fashion, and somewhere else they went off the rails. And I feel like we're really failing to do such a simple thing, which is prior to discharge, I mean, it could be so, it could become a lot more sophisticated, but it could be so simple, a low, medium, high risk, how breastfeeding is going at the time of discharge. This is a Mom who successfully breastfeeded in the past, her milk is already here, the baby is clearly transferring. Mm-hmm. Boom. You are mm-hmm. a low risk person. I feel mm-hmm. so comfortable not seeing you for two days. Mm-hmm. Then the people who, you know, they've got already nipple damage, the baby's 37 weeks, you know, that sort of stuff. And the fact that every single baby that leaves the hospital gets assessed for jaundice and gets ranked and you know follow up based on that and that's not happening for feeding is just it's embarrassing yeah it's true it's true because that's ultimately the bottom line (laughs) it's the jaundice is a sign more than anything yeah and i think that there's so many um there's so many people that they just don't understand what's going on so like the fact that this study said, you know, the moms are supposed to give this formula until they have, quote, copious milk production. Mm-hmm. That's really loosey-goosey. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I mean, I've so many times been in the room with the mom and I look around and there's little bottles of formula all over the room. And I say to the mom, oh, you know, how are you feeding the baby? And she said, oh, you know, I've been giving this formula. And I say, oh, you know, what, how's breastfeeding going? And she'll say, oh, you know, I don't have any milk yet. And I look and she's super engorged. Mm-hmm. And she just totally doesn't understand that, you know, what's going on. Yeah. I got right. a study in my email. Oh, it was done quite a while ago um, by Jane Morton that she did about, you know, the change in breast milk sodium content right before mm-hmm. increase in volume. Mm-hmm. And so there are tools that we have to, you know, have objective measures. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I forgot I was going to say. No, No, that's okay. Um, Yeah, I know. I totally agree with you that um, we could come up with a, you know, just without all the scientific tools of sodium and, and glandular growth and the breast, et cetera. But, you know, even, but, you know, I guess I was going to say too, is that even for women, many women who have insufficient glandular tissue, they can feel really full at 15 ml. So I just saw a woman, you know, yesterday who, you know, she felt like her milk came in on day three, her breasts were really full. In fact, her husband took pictures of her engorgement. And so um, he showed them to me yesterday. I'm like, wow, yeah, they definitely look engorged. But um, when she's super full, she expresses 20 ml, and then she has relief. And um, the baby is, you know, for the most part, taking 90 ml after every feeding, and the baby's like two weeks old. So... um, Wait, I have a question. Yeah. So now when she gets full and she's got this 20 ml, Mm -hmm. do her breasts look like they did on that day three photo, or is that all edema? 
Uh, well, that was that was edema. But today, I mean, yesterday when I saw her, she had not fed for a couple hours, and her breast felt full to me, like they were rock hard. Um, and um, the most that she had was twenty ml. So, wow, yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times, I mean, there's such variety in anatomy. And, you know, there's people who I see that have very small breasts that I'm like, oh, my gosh, where they're pumping and it's coming, you know, out eight ounces. And I'm like, where where was that? I don't see how that yeah. possibly could have been in there. Exactly. Yeah. And the moms who have really large breasts who don't have a lot of glandular tissue. But I use this really I may have said this to you before on a previous podcast, this really stupid tool now to explain to families about breast fullness, which is if you poke yourself in the cheek, it feels really squishy. Okay, listeners, everybody poke your own cheek. That's what the breast feels like before milk. It's just squishy. And then when you start to get more milk, it's like poking your nose. It's kind of bouncy. There's rebound. <laughs> and then super engorged breasts can feel like your forehead. Oh, there you go. And That's really great. I like that analogy. It's actually super helpful when I'm with the residents because I mostly teach peds residents. And, you know, they're not as comfortable examining the moms. They don't mm -hmm. realize that it's a symbiotic relationship. You've got to do it. And so I'm like... You know, if I teach them what to look for, then they're willing to look. You look at the nipples, you look for damage, you look at the breast and you palpate to see if there are changes that are happening. And then you teach the family. And when I say that to the mom and she appreciates that change in her breast for the first time, she's so thrilled, like, oh, this is working. Yeah. I, I guess, I don't know if, if we're ready to wrap it up, but I guess one comment I'd, I want to make in general is that I am not against supplementation. Like supplementation, we, I think we see so many mothers who are delivering now who 30 years ago may not have ever gotten pregnant. And those factors are associated with insufficient um, glandular tissue. They're associated with a delay in lactation, the way that we birth with, you know, various medications and whatever. You know, there's, there's a high lot risk of, moms. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of high risk moms in high risk situations um, that, um, you know, that make lactation difficult or delay lactation. So I'm not against supplementation. What I'm against is the lack of breastfeeding support with supplementation. So if you ask me, if the baby is supplemented formula in the hospital, is that going to have a negative impact on my patients who generally have a high intention? I personally would say no, because I feel that I can get them through it. Just like, you know, women look, you know, parents will look at me when their babies are like down huge percentages and they'll say, well, and they're finger feeding and it's like week three, and they are, won't give a bottle because they're so afraid that the baby won't nurse after that. I'll say, don't worry. If you give a bottle, I will get your baby back to the breast. We will mm -hmm. do this. You know, like I have confidence. And I have confidence that if they give some formula postpartum, I'm going to get them through this. We're going to, you know, unless they have, you know, really severe insufficient glandular tissue. But the the thing is that I can provide that support. And so um, so I'm not against supplementation. And I And I think it's important that... And I don't think any lactation consultant or any breastfeeding medicine physician is against supplementation. In fact, we are oftentimes the first people to say that babies need to be supplemented. It's what you do with that supplementation and how you support the diet, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not here to say that formula is evil. But no. there is an option, which is donor milk. And and can we and is donor milk um, more optimal? Yeah. Is it better? Yes, it is better. It's more physiologic. Um yeah. And, and I, you know, not everybody has the option of donor milk, but right. mm -hmm. I think the fact that there was no discussion in this study about supporting the moms, um, in terms of breast stimulation or milk removal, if they are giving formula or donor milk is a really, um, a big oversight because I think that, you know, people, may read the study who don't have that basic tenant of if the mom isn't exclusively feeding at the breast, the baby's getting milk or formula. Otherwise, her breasts don't know that. And we have to, you know, do something to, to help her to right. create her full milk supply, especially those moms who um, aren't giving limited volumes because they give us, you know, Huge conveniently amount. sized bottle that right. came from a free formula company and the baby sleeps for four hours and the mom doesn't have any breast stimulation. And so I can understand what 
the authors are trying to do in a positive way. I just feel like this wasn't written in a way that that optimized some of those things that we're talking about. There's one last point that I wanted to go into from here that um, was sort of like a paragraph unto itself in the study, aside from the discussion, and it was called Relationship of Formula Feeding at One Week to Subsequent Breastfeeding Practices. Mm-hmm. And they said... Among the 127 enrolled infants who responded to the assessment of breastfeeding at one week of age, so the ones who got the one-week phone call, um, 63% of those in the limited formula group um, were exclusively breastfeeding as opposed to 78% of those who were in the control group. And then the receipt of formula at one week of age was very strongly associated with all subsequent breastfeeding outcomes. So if you look at the um, babies who were in the limited formula group, Mm -hmm. if they were receiving formula at one week of age, then their six-month breastfeeding, any breastfeeding, was 31% versus 85% in the -hmm. control group. Mm Mm-hmm. And really the, amazing difference. Yeah, and in the 12 months, the babies that were in the early formula group, only 5% of those were still getting any breast milk at a year. Mm-hmm. And in the control group, it was 53%. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are really, really significant. Yeah. And they're put in here in their own paragraph. They're not mentioned in the abstract. Mm-hmm. And right. I find that extremely concerning. I think yes. that... You know, you commented in the question of the week that two of these authors disclosed um, some previous association with formula companies. And I have to say that I'm concerned about the bias in the study. Yes, I totally agree. Yes. And right. And that's that's exactly right. How can you not mention that in the abstract? And one of the comments that was made in the clinical question of the week was, um, why are you talking about exclusive breastfeeding rates at six months? That's not in the abstract. And I'm like, right, it isn't interesting, right? It's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So I um, yeah, in the one week, uh, I thought that that statement kind of was, you know, about the fact that any breastfeeding at that formula feeding at one week had these like markedly different, you know, lower rates of breastfeeding at six months and 12 months. I thought, wow, you know, you're just kind of, um, you know, you're, you're sort of questioning. It allows one to question everything that you're stating so far. So, well, yeah. And, and so. they went on this sort of long statement about, Oh, there's probably not anything really different about a baby who's breastfeeding at six months based on whether or not they were given formula at one week of age. And so it must be something to do with the parents' attitudes because of that early exposure and how comfortable they feel. Right. And I'm like, right. there was no measure about these infants' weight gain. Yeah. So you can't tell me that the babies that were you know, breastfeeding, but mom didn't have sufficient milk. And so they were starting to fall off the chart at two and four months. And the pediatrician said, you, you know, need to do something about this. And they started giving more formula didn't lead to more early cessation of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot here. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, yeah, I am amazed. I got published in JAMA. Um, and uh, I, I, I would love to see who the reviewers were for this article <laughs> because I, I would have thought this was unethical um, and this or at least published. Poorly written. I, yeah, I'm, and poorly written too. Yeah. I'm disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. And I just hope, I don't know, there's definitely a group that will use this information for, you know, just rallying for routine supplementation. But I wish that, I guess the other thing too, is that I wish that they would have mentioned about the supplementation with donor milk, that that would have been. Yeah, they really lay it out like it's a stark contrast. You have increased risk of dehydration of bilirubin, or we have this amazing choice that we could give everybody. Yeah. Um, okay, that was maybe true a couple of decades ago. Right, right, yeah. And I think some milk banks um, might argue that they don't want to, uh, that they're worried about the trend of the use of donor milk on the floor um, because, you know, they're not, not in the NICU um, because of just the resource, um, the dear resource of breast milk and it making sure it's available for NICUs. But, um, 
you know, I'm the medical director of our milk bank in the Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes. And we are, you know, business is booming. I mean, there's a lot of milk um, and hospitals want to use it on the floor and um, it's available. So, well, And there's milk that they have that they will not use in the NICU. So, for instance, they have milk that's 18 calorie milk that they're not going to give to NICU babies. And they have milk in my hospital that gets defrosted every day for the NICU that doesn't get used within 24 hours of thawing that they throw right. away. Right. That right. could be sent to the, um, you know, well babies. And so it isn't just a matter of it being a limited resource. There is milk that literally sits and expires and gets thrown away um, both after thawing and after six months because it's deemed not appropriate for preemies. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you have a milk technician, um, which I don't know what percent of hospitals have milk technicians, um, but if there's a milk technician at the hospital that's that's um, carefully, you know, sterilely doling out, you know, pre-measuring the supplementation of that donor milk, then it's easy for that to be incorporated to just identify which milk is ready to go to the floor and use that. Um, you just use the word yeah. easy, and we've been fighting over this for a long time in my hospital, so like... clinically easy but administratively it's really hard and I think that's where a lot of people are getting hung up is that Mm -hmm. having policies you know I feel like everybody's reinventing the wheel having a policy that you know different hospitals that decide to take this on can take and have a you know protocol and directions I think is something that will allow a lot more hospitals to expand the availability of that right right well, this, uh, boy, we really uh, chewed on this one. So this was great fodder for discussion. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up. And um, and please, if anyone's interested, please comment on our Facebook page, the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, and like us. And um, thanks, Karen. That was a great discussion. That was fun. Everybody check out that question of the week. Yes, yes, at lacted, L-A-C-T-E-D dot org. Thanks. We'll talk to you later, Karen. Mm-hmm. Bye. Okay, bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.